ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Hello and welcome to the December 2016 edition of the ASIP podcast. This is Tom Prigge of the ASIP staff and on this podcast we'll hear from ASIP chairman of the board and CEO Dr. Lakshmaya Manchikani about regenerative medicine. In the news segment we'll learn about a resurgence in the use of nitrous oxide. I'll have the latest medical marijuana news a story about painkillers and hearing loss, and much more. And we'll wrap things up with a study about eye trauma and Laurel and Hardy movies. Well, ASIP will be publishing opioid guidelines in the March 2017 issue of Pain Physician Journal. Uh, The methodology utilized included the development of objectives and key questions. Now, the methodology also utilized trustworthy standards appropriate disclosures of conflicts of interest, as well as a panel of experts from various specialties and groups. The literature pertaining to opioid use, abuse, effectiveness, and adverse consequences was reviewed with the best evidence synthesis of the available literature and utilized grading for recommendations as described by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, also known as AHRQ. Now, you can read a draft version of the guidelines on our website, which is www.asipp.org. There's also a link there to submit comments on the draft. Now, the current draft, as of the day that I am recording this podcast, is 146 pages long and contains 715 references. The ASIP podcast is brought to you in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Up next, ASIP's CEO and Chairman of the Board, Dr. Lakshmaya Manchikani, shares some of his thoughts on regenerative medicine. Stay with us here on the ASIP Podcast. At a regenerative course conducted by ASIP in August, Dr. Manchikani presented an introductory lecture for the course. Here are some excerpts from that lecture. 
what is regenerative medicine? Uh, yesterday somebody asked me what I thought about it, how I got into this, or why I was conducting this meeting. So, to summarize in one, one sentence or three words I said, uh, it uh, comes to my mind, cynical, skeptical, hopeful. So I started to be cynical about regenerative medicine. Then I became skeptical. Now I'm trying to be hopeful. We still don't have that much evidence and there are so many politics among our groups. All the people who are practicing regenerative medicine are promoting the regenerative medicine and practitioners are totally, totally confused what to do. So what is it? They consider that as an innovative medical therapist. That is accurate because it is not already existing and something innovation that enables the body to repair, replace, restore, and regenerate damaged or diseased cells, tissues, and organs. This is the Mayo Clinic definition. But they're not talking about this application for musculoskeletal medicine, I think. They are mostly talking about other things, heart, brain, other organs. So theoretically, science merges with technology to achieve self-healing. But remember, this they have been doing this research for years and years and years. It is not a new thing. It uses procedures to repair or replace tools and applications. There are three types of regenerative medicine, that is stem cells, platelet-rich plasma, and amniotic fluid. So our focus is on stem cells, and that too on adult stem cells, and platelet-rich plasma. The applications for interventional pain management, you can discs and other spinal structures, joints, ligaments. You can do it for cosmetic purposes. You can do it for interstitial cystitis. There are many, many applications. Again, the evidence is not there yet. Yet, that is the important part. We are hoping it would be someday. So stem cells repair, replace, restore, and regenerate. What is the benefits of adult stem cell use? When you talk about stem cells, everybody suddenly thinks that they're talking about the fetus. That is not what this is about. We are talking about adult stem cells here. You are taking from autologous, from the same person and injecting into the same person. So that is the first clarification you have to give to anybody you talk to. So next thing is it is easy to obtain. There are plenty of areas where you can get your stem cells from your body. There is no limit how many you can have, except that you keep having more and more wounds. Patients can use their own stem cells for treatment and therapy. Adult stem cells are politically neutral. <laughs> so, <coughs> Democrats, Republicans, Repub liberal nuts, conservative nuts, all of them, they don't, none of them have any problems with that. But yesterday I found out that they don't want you to use the word treatment. Uh, maybe I should take that out of uh, my slide. So one of the physicians who is practicing 
regenerative medicine, he got a letter from the Board of Medical Licensure saying that he's calling it treatment. So they said you cannot use the word treatment. So that I just learned that yesterday. So. so they're not offensive to any major interest group. Nobody's going to come up. PRP, platelet-rich plasma therapy. Now, if you go into regenerative therapy, we had prolotherapy for years and years. It came and gone, came and gone, and all these things, and finally looks like it's gone now. Platelet-rich plasma therapy has been there for a long time. It uses concentrated platelets from patients' blood sample. It contains cytokines and growth factors. It accelerates healing and reduces pain. So some people are saying that when you use some of the stem cells sold by different types of people, and we don't know what is in it and how many live stem cells are in, actually in there. It may be that what all you have in that solution is only cytokines or growth factors rather than stem cells. It may be just the PRP instead of a stem cell. But it is not a pretty picture. There are numerous, numerous controversies. We don't get reimbursed. Probably that is a good thing. If you get reimbursed, probably they will reimburse you for $120, or if you really try hard, maybe $250. But it takes a lot more than that to do these things. So it is a, sometimes it can be considered as a blessing. So what do we have evidence? Uh, I wrote a article on innovations in interventional pain management of chronic spinal pain. Actually, I took this as uh, stem cells and uh, PRP therapy as one of the most innovative things happening to us. If we can prove that these work, these are safe, probably this, this is the most innovative thing has happened in a long, long time. But again, we really need publications, not the talks, meetings, but publications, research, and appropriately performed studies. There is a review article on future therapy of platelet plasma. Nick Candido and Alan Kay wrote this. Um, there is a potential for regenerative therapy there are several systems are existent, but there is no standardization again. There is only a limited evidence. So they show that how, is, how does it works on the disc? But do we know what difference does it make? The final difference is how much pain relief you get, how long do you get it, how much functional improvement you have. Those are the outcomes we have to have. You can have all these signs. This is great to have basic signs, but we have to have the clinical information. Dr. Nawani submitted an article uh, to pain physician. I think it was accepted. She describes again about the PRP historically and shows the, all the studies available describing PRP in musculoskeletal disorders. And there are studies, some under publication, one of our studies uh, being considered for publication, and uh, there are two studies by Patin, the same study published twice, with a small number of patients showing some improvement. Again, there is no standardization of stem cells. Did they have stem cells in what the solution they are injecting? 
what was the PRP, then did they mix the cases with PRP and stem cells. There is so much heterogeneity in them. There are differences among these cells with basic signs as well as clinical applications and complications and perceptions. So you're going to hear all this tomorrow, today, tomorrow. So our major issue is the future outlook about education, certification, and guidelines. We are focusing on these three issues. So we wanted ABIP and ACIP to be in forefront. So when we approved these courses for regenerative medicine and a competency examination, there were not really that many courses. Now I'm getting this every day, two, three courses. <laughs> there are so many, we are all overwhelmed by it. I don't have that much time to attend all these courses. I don't know how much. Every course shows that there is something different. So I'm sure you can learn something different, but there is no comprehensive curriculum. We don't have standards. So our objective is uh, to realize the need for regenerative medicine. We know that there is a need for regenerative medicine, practices and procedures. We need to identify proper tools and technologies. We need to understand the challenges, promises and potential. Identify the potential benefits and develop guidelines. Now those who are interested in certification, American Board of Interventional Pain Physicians will be offering the competency certification. This is the same specialty board, provides board certification in IPM, recognized in multiple states, and also provides competency certifications in IPM. Those who do not have primary board certification in any specialty, so they don't qualify for any type of specialty examination. But at the same time, you need to prove that you are technically competent to do these things, what we are doing. I'm not even talking about regenerative medicine, IPM itself. Are we technically competent? Somebody can come and tell you that you're not. It really doesn't matter. Other day somebody said, I was not technically competent either. Okay. <laughs> you take every comment with a grain of salt because I was not doing my procedures according to so-and-so standards. I never submit myself or I don't want anybody to submit to any type of standards. You have to do it safely and the best manner you are comfortable with. If it is a risky procedure, don't do it. If it is a risky way to do it, don't do it. So whether it is me or anyone else, it doesn't matter. So people have different types of practices. Even my daughter doesn't do the procedures like what I do. So it doesn't matter. So everybody does their own way, what they have learned, the, how they did. Now, on the competency issue, we have spinal endoscopic decompression, but regenerative medicine is the important one for this audience. So this is the one we are going to give. There will be a pilot type of testing soon we are preparing the examination now, so probably we will be able to offer this examination sometime early part of next year to those who meet the criteria. On this segment of the podcast, we take a look at pain news that you might have missed. We'll start off with some marijuana news. New research reports that people who regularly smoke large amounts of cannabis 
have reduced bone density and are more prone to fractures. The study also found that heavy cannabis users have a lower body weight and a reduced BMI, or body mass index, which could contribute to thinning of their bones. Now, scientists at the University of Edinburgh assessed 170 people who smoke cannabis regularly for recreational purposes and 114 non-users who smoke cigarettes. They used a DEXA scan to measure the bone density of the study participants. They found that the bone density of heavy cannabis users was about 5% lower than the cigarette smokers who did not use cannabis. Fractures were more common in heavy users compared to non-users. Moderate users, however, showed no difference from non-users. Moderate cannabis use was defined as taking cannabis more than five and less than 5,000 times, and heavy cannabis use was defined as taking cannabis on more than 5,000 occasions. That study was funded by Arthritis Research UK and was published in the American Journal of Medicine. More bad news for pot smokers, this time from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Researchers used Single Photon Emission Computer Tomography, or SPECT, to evaluate blood flow to the brain. When compared to healthy controls, they found that in marijuana users, there was abnormally low blood flow in almost every area of the brain. Of special concern to them was the low blood flow to the hippocampus, an area known to be associated with Alzheimer pathology. Our final pot story concerns its influence on vision. A study uh, published in JAMA Ophthalmology sought to find an answer to this question. Does marijuana affect the healthy functioning of retinal ganglion cells? Well, the answer? Regular pot users do appear to experience a slight delay in their retinal ganglion cells. The French study conducted neural signaling tests to compare retinal ganglion cell function between pot smokers and non-smokers. The test showed a 10 millisecond delay in the speed in with which pot smoker retinal ganglion cells send key signals to the brain via the optic nerve. Limitations of the study include the small sample size of just 28 smokers and 24 non-smokers and the possibility of other lifestyle factors that might have affected the results. Well, since the mid-1800s, nitrous oxide has been used for pain relief, but it's usually associated with a visit to the dentist. In the early 20th century, women used it to ease the pain of labor, but its use declined in favor of more potent analgesia. Now, some midwives are helping to revive its use in the U.S. Until 2011, only a couple of hospitals in the United States offered nitrous oxide to women in labor. Today, it's in the hundreds, according to the two main manufacturers of nitrous oxide systems. One of those manufacturers, Porter Instrument, maker of Nitronox, says nearly 300 hospitals and birth centers use the option for pain management. The American Society of Anesthesiologists reviewed research and in May 2011 said in a paper that they would like to see more and more rigorous studies on its safety and effectiveness. Nitrous oxide is less expensive than an epidural by hundreds, sometimes even thousands of dollars. The disposable breathing apparatus costs about $25 and the cost of the gas is about 50 cents an hour. 
Now, one problem hospitals are having is they don't know how to bill for the gas. It has been reported that hospitals are being creative in how they charge for it. According to research published in the November and December issue of the Annals of Family Medicine and reported by the website Health Day, discussing the risk of long-term opioid use disorder with patients is associated with a reduced misuse of opioids. Joaquim O'Hiro, MPH from Harvard and his colleagues, used surveys to assess the effects of a recent recommendation that physicians discuss the risk of long-term use disorder with patients when prescribing opioids. The researchers found that after adjusting for covariates, there was a 60% lower rate in self-reported saving of pills among respondents who reported talking to their physicians about the risks of prescription painkiller addiction. The mental health of patients with back pain was the subject of a worldwide study published in the journal General Hospital Psychiatry. Researchers from Great Britain looked at 200,000 patients in 43 countries and found that those with back pain were three times more likely to be depressed and more than twice as likely to experience psychosis. Anxiety, stress, and sleep disturbances were also found to exceed norms. Another finding from the study was the prevalence of back pain and its wide variance, from 13.7% in China to 57% in Nepal. Regular long-term use of acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is associated with a modestly elevated risk for hearing loss in women, suggests an American Journal of Epidemiology study. Over 55,000 women aged 44 through 69 in the Nurses' Health Study answered questions about incident hearing loss and how often they took aspirin, acetaminophen, and NSAIDs. During 873,000 person years follow-up, nearly 19,000 women said they developed hearing loss. After multivariable adjustment, regular NSAID and acetaminophen use of two or more days per week for more than six years was associated with incident hearing loss compared with less than one year of use. Aspirin use showed no association. Finally, hoping to reduce what they say is inappropriate opioid prescribing, the Chicago City Council has passed a law requiring all pharmaceutical sales reps to be licensed. The ordinance requires sales reps to undergo training for ethics, marketing regulations, and applicable laws. They will also have to file reports disclosing the names of doctors they visit, how many times they visit them, plus any samples, materials, or gifts that they give the doctors, along with how much those samples, materials, or gifts are worth. On top of all this, the reps will have to pay a $750 licensing fee that must be renewed every year. Chicago expects to collect more than $1 million from the licensing fees. The city says they will use the money for opioid education for the public and for physicians. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief. 
delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. Well, ASIP's annual meeting in April in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace continues to take shape as we add speakers and topics to the program. Uh, register today by going to our website, asipp.org. Online registration is quick, it's easy, and you can even make your hotel reservations by using the link on our website. So do it today before you forget. Now, here are the breakout sessions that we will have in the afternoons and some of the topics that will be covered. The session on compliance, billing, and coding, which is always popular, will have talks on urine drug testing and an update on HIPAA. The Responsible Controlled Substance Prescribing session will have a guidelines review and a talk on risk strategies. In the Resident Fellow session, attendees can learn about creating a startup practice. The Regenerative Medicine session will have a talk concerning platelet-rich plasma for soft tissue or tendon injuries. And the session on emerging concepts in IPM We'll look at a review of the evidence for spinal cord stimulation and emerging therapies in spinal stenosis. Now, of course, each of these breakout sessions will cover more topics than I have just listed. So check out our website uh, that will list all the topics in the annual meeting brochure that we have there online. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation, and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Finally, from our friends at Improbable Research, a group that we have quoted before here on the ACIP podcast, in many old movies, slapstick comedians would poke other comedians in the eye. A Dutch medical team writing in a Scottish medical journal calculated the physical damage this would have done if the eye poking had been real eye poking, not just pretend poking. The name of the article is Eye Trauma in Laurel and Hardy Movies. Another nice mess. It was written by Lara Zagers and Richard Zagers and was published in the Scottish Medical Journal. One of the characteristics in Laurel and Hardy films, if you've ever seen one, is a lot of physical violence. Their study examined the occurrence of eye trauma in Laurel and Hardy movies and discussed the impact they would have had if the films were real. Now, all 92 movies starring Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy were watched together by the authors and were scored for any eye trauma. 88 eye traumas happened, of which 48% were directed at Hardy. The eye poke was the most frequently occurring eye trauma, 
and a traumatic corneal abrasion was very likely the most frequently occurring injury. Among the most serious causes of eye trauma were the pin of a door handle, a stick, a champagne cork, a tree branch, and tacks. The authors concluded, in their words, without a doubt, if their films had been reality, especially Hardy, but also Laurel and several other people, would have suffered from serious eye injuries caused by the 88 eye traumas. Well, no kidding. That wraps up this month's podcast. I'd like to hear from you. Send me an email at tom at asip.org. That's T-O-M at A-S-I-P-P dot O-R-G. This is Tom Priggy. Thanks for listening. And please join me next month for another ASIP podcast. Thank you.